0: And welcome to episode three of this six part series on dispelling all those myths about low code. You can pick up at whatever point you like, but they're best listened to in the order of their release. Well, that's what I think at least.
1: If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, why not go back and listen from the beginning? The last one was about flexibility. We went all low code warrior one and two.
0: And we're not going anywhere. So if you want to listen back, we'll be right here waiting for you. Michael!
1: Hi, Jenny. Hop in. Already?
0: ready? Uh, the way you're saying it makes me feel like I should be holding on to something.
1: The road is clear, and we're needed at our next scenario.
0: Whoa, that's fast. Uh, okay, so I'm guessing your new drive has something to do with today's scenario?
1: It does. Today we're heading to see
2: Jim. I'm Jim. I'm the head of development for SPEEB.
0: Speed?
1: No, it's SPEEB. Yes, that's SPEEB, with B. B. They're an automotive supplier, in the fictional Siemens world, of course.
0: So we're SPEEDING to SPEEB? Huh. So, what's myth number three, Michael?
1: I really like this one because it's all about relationships. The myth is low-code will disrupt team culture.
2: The last few weeks, I've been laser focused on our new electric vehicle initiatives. Digital manufacturing has already led to a major shift in the way we work. And my development team has already taken the wheel and moving speed into an agile startup style approach.
0: Wow, he sounds ultra dedicated.
2: They always are. This style of working has massively improved our product. We're talking drive range, reliability, and durability on the road. And I feel like our success can be credited down to our team culture.
0: That sounds great. So why do they need Mendix?
2: I'm looking for ways to improve how we work together and share information across all our teams. That's electrical, electronics, and mechanical. But that's a lot easier said than done. We've got extremely tight budgets and a whole lot of work to do. And I'm thinking of getting our hands on a low code development application to try and reduce some of the load on my current developers, but I don't know how they'll react to this idea.
1: This is the thing I like about low code. How do you get it to work alongside developers who are a bit resistant to change?
2: With all due respect, my developers are a bit old school, but I get it. We're all worried about our jobs being
0: automated one day.
2: They might be thinking, is this the first step?
0: Ooh, so the robots might be out to get them.
1: Right, so how can Jim tell his team that a low-code platform A is something that will support them, and B isn't going to become the AI knife in their back?
0: Ooh, you made it sound like a case for a very 21st century Sherlock Holmes there.
1: Almost. I asked Isaac Sakalik, who we first met in Episode 1, how to solve this culture mismatch.
3: This is actually a scenario that's near and dear to my heart. It's where I actually discovered low code platforms when I was a CTO. And, you know, congratulations to this group. They're innovating. They're delivering on emerging technology. They have a strong culture and talent. I'm going to turn this into an architecture discussion. This is a mature group with a strong culture, with a strong capability around technology. You know, let's have a conversation. Where is innovation needed? Where are you providing value that I want my best software developers really focused on, either to provide something that's differentiating or improve an experience? And then where are some places where I need the team to be more efficient and more productive and provide capabilities outside of what our core competencies are. Then I can open up the discussion and say, look, I don't think we're gonna be using the same technologies that we're using today in three, five, seven, and 10 years. How do we provide better capabilities, more reliably, more productivity? And that's why we're gonna be looking at these platforms, right? Let's look at some places where we can introduce a platform that just allows us to do more and faster.
0: Right, so we're going with bigger, better, stronger, faster. That sounds like the right tactic for an automotive company like Jim's.
1: Exactly, and I loved this next bit because here Isaac gives us a little insight into how he did it.
3: When I was a CTO, I found a few places to do this. One was we would build a lot of customer-facing technologies. That's where we really focused our innovation. Every tool, every capability we put in front of customers also had a back office component to it. It had admin functionalities, it had workflow, it had customer support functionality. I wanted to make sure that I can build the support functionality just as uh, as productivity, You know, with good productivity, with good workflow, with good automation, as well as I was doing the front end customer experience. I wanted to have a great employee experience. I wanted to make sure that they could resolve issues, set up onboard customers, and I looked at that problem and I said, do I need to do this? And at that time it was Java and .NET. Do I need to do this in Java.NET or can I find a more efficient way to connect to my databases, connect to my web services, provide a great experience to my employees and not bring over my, you know, my A-team who are working on the customer experience to work also on these back office functions.
0: And what about the team? Because Jim of Speeb was most
3: concerned about their reaction.
1: Well, his team responded, as you might expect them to. Why can't we just pull out some libraries and code?
3: And I just said, look, you know, I, I know we can do that. I just want to find an alternative way to bring another team, another group of people in to own this part of our application and own this part of our experience so that we can continue to innovate.
1: Do you think that your team ended up enjoying working
3: with it? I think, to be honest, it took a little bit of a hurdle to get them on board with it. The development team would prefer having everything in one code-based, in one system, in one way of controlling it.
0: Well, that sounds like a nice way of saying no.
1: It's what it sounds like, but then he took a sharp corner.
0: Nice. So he's like the Lewis Hamilton of low-code.
3: And I just had to show them that their success was breeding more success. It was creating demand for more innovation to enhance our applications more frequently, to improve our reliability, to grow and scale the performance because we were getting more usage. And I said, look, we've hit success. We are doing more that our business is asking us for to do. And we need to look for ways to bring other members of the team to be productive, to allow us to do these things.
0: So it sounds like the idea was actually to go back to the culture of collaboration.
1: Yes, it was to say, hey, our team is working great and wouldn't it be greater if we had more people who could help out? But let's go back a bit to Jim's team he's got more potential now to bring in people with a range of skill sets and experience. But where do you start with something like that?
3: If you start to using your vision to project timelines, to project scope, it's going to get you in trouble, right? You're, you really have to be grounded as a CTO and saying, what is the team telling me that they can do in the next sprint, in the next release? What are they signing up for? I'm using really agile terms here because so much innovation is using Scrum and agile to say, empower the team to say what their capability of doing. Now, the second job of the CTO is to think through the next horizon. What are we planning for? I know my team is delivering X in the next sprint, in the next release. What am I getting ready for them? What's the next horizon? Where are my gaps? What are some areas of innovation that I can't access because my team is moving 30 miles per hour and I need to think about how to bring them up to 40, 50 miles per hour. Right, And that's a capacity issue. It's a productivity issue. Sometimes it's also a capability issue.
0: It's all about understanding your team. That's
1: it. Of course, a lot goes
0: into a job like Jim's.
3: And I'm saying, well, Am I going to bring in skill sets and learn how to do this natively and take that timeline to do that? Or am I going to look for technologies that help accelerate this? And I think that's been a big part of where low-code has really succeeded in the last couple of years. If you looked at three, four, five years ago, you know, we were building forms out. We were building reports out. We're building workflows out. We're doing that sort of genre of work. We're doing a lot of integrations. Now I'm saying, oh, if you want to connect to a natural language processing engine. If you want to connect to image processing, are you going to go figure out all the native interfaces to do that or am I going to use a low code plugin to enable that? And really what I'm focused on is how do I deliver value out of something like that instead of all the science that goes into it.
0: You know, it's funny because it feels a little bit like you're working backwards.
1: Maybe a little, but I think of it as the low code lets
0: you get on with
1: collaborating and the team building.
0: So, low code solves the need
3: for speed. It's a really disciplined process, but the main job of a CTO is to create a sustainable, growing, supportable process. Okay, the technologies are going to change over time, the business requirements are going to change. We're taking a success factor, culture that's working well, a software development process that's working well, and the CTO's challenging the team and saying, Do we want to expand? what we're doing architecturally to look at different ways of doing things um, than what we've been doing in the past. And that, you know, that's a big part of that discipline that CTOs have to, you know, they have to find the right timing to do this, have to find the right business cases to apply to it, have to find the right way to engage their team on the benefits and what their fear factors are. Got to be timed, right?
1: Right. That's just human nature. So that's Jim's responsibility. People are going to be cautious. He needs to take care that he knows the benefits and that he can match them against their fears.
3: You're gonna have someone in security is gonna say something. You're gonna have somebody who would prefer doing it natively on a public cloud. They're gonna have their own set of concerns around this. You're gonna have your testers, you're gonna have a different set of tools and all those are gonna come into play. And part of the CTO is to orchestrate that conversation and say, Maybe we have to do something different. Let's look at some of our options and see if we can find better ways of doing things. Right? We're not doing C anymore, right? We're not, we're doing C++, we're doing .NET, we're doing Java, and we're doing now low code.
0: Oh, I was waiting for the mic to drop. That was an amazing way to end.
1: So we found out that low code is a bridge builder between departments. It gets more people to become part of the team, bringing in more heads, more minds, more skills
0: which makes it all the easier to go bigger, better, stronger, faster, or
1: speedier. And all without losing a single one of your brilliant developers.
0: Thanks for joining us today. Remember, we're busting one myth a week.
1: If you want to learn more about low code or start building on Mendex, visit mendex.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.